This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network. Today we are joined by M.R. Sharan, uh, who's an assistant professor at the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Maryland, College Park. And I am, of course, Saryo Natarajan, joined by my co-host. Hi, I'm Alok Prasanakumar, everyone. And, uh, uh, and of course, we have Sharan with us as well. Uh, hello, Sharon. Uh, hi, Saryu. Hi, Alok. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, very excited to be on the podcast. Before I uh, jump into speaking with you, uh, Sharon, about your book and your work more broadly, uh, I'd just like to read out a quick note about what you do. Uh, Sharon, as I mentioned, is an assistant professor at the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Maryland College Park. His work centers around questions in development economics and the political economy. Uh, It also focuses on inequality in socially diverse settings and examines how institutional and and technological innovations could empower marginalized groups. Uh, He has worked as a researcher and policy economist with research organizations, state governments, and the central government in India. Prior to his PhD from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, he has obtained degrees in economics, first from the Hansraj College and then at the Delhi School of Economics. He's also been a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Global Development. Uh, in addition to his work in economics, he writes more broadly, and his first narrative nonfiction book on village politics in Bihar, titled Last Among Equals, which is what we hope to discuss today, uh, was released in December 2021. His novel Blue was published by HarperCollins in 2014. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Sarin. So, Sharon, you know, we'll start with the question that we ask uh, everybody that we have on the part- podcast, but uh, would love to know your journey and what brought you to the book um, and also the fundamental premises of uh, what you discussed in Last Amongst Equals. So the book is basically an outcome of kind of 10 long years of working and doing research in the state, Indian state of Bihar. Bihar is amongst India's most uh, underdeveloped and uh, poverty-ridden states. It also has historically low state capacity. It's extremely densely populated, um, super fertile land, but also uh, very poor. And uh, I just, uh, in 2012, I got an offer to kind of work as a research associate with the Jameel Poverty Action Lab, JPAL, which is this um, kind of large international organization that primarily was started by the Nobel winning economists, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Ruflo. And there was a, a, a research opportunity to do some research with the Bihar government on a study that they were conducting. So that's how I got into Bihar. Uh, Within six months of reaching Bihar, I kind of realized that uh, I was 
being exposed to something that I'd never seen before, um, a kind of way of living, uh, the the society, but also more broadly the state, um, people, culture, traditions, language. Um, there was something about all of it that felt both um, alien and familiar. Um, and so even after I finished my research stint and I applied for a PhD, I knew I was going to come back uh, at some point to Bihar to continue to do field work. And what had happened in those uh, two, three years between 2012 and 2014-15 was that I also completely had a chance encounter with this uh, gentleman called Sanjay Sani, who is the main protagonist of the uh, book Last Amongst Equals. Uh, we kind of bumped into each other. I write about it in the book. And... Um, we became really good friends and uh, he was kind of doing very inspirational work amongst uh, villagers in Bihar fighting corruption at the ground level and I felt like I was uh, both exposed to a fantastic human being but also to a struggle that I had not uh, I had no prior knowledge of and seemed entirely fascinating so that's basically uh, what had happened with Bihar and then I came back during the PhD and the other big trigger for writing the book actually was that if you do research in academic economics, which is what primarily I do, mainstream academic economics, uh, most of what you see and do, you can't put into a, a research paper. So uh, a lot of the stories, a lot of the anecdotes, a lot of what actually gives flavor and richness to uh, your findings uh, doesn't go into the paper. And most of it is kind of dry quantitative data analysis. So, um, so that's basically how... I realized that if I had to find an outlet for everything I had seen, I had to write a book. And uh, that's how the book came about. Uh, you know, Sharon, when you were speaking about how uh, some disciplines, uh, and I come from political science, don't allow you to record what you see because you're not trained to look at it uh, through your through the lens of your discipline. I mean, I absolutely hear that. Um, my work was in uh, urban areas in Bangalore. And uh, I wanted to have a long segment describing the sights and sounds in two areas that I was comparing um, as a part of a comparative study of some sort. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had to exclude it um, because, you know, I'm not trained to look at and hear uh, sounds. So, uh, but absolutely resonate that. But I'd love to sort of take you into, uh, back into the field uh, as itself, as it were. Uh, and I think your book starts with a narrative about conflict um, between uh, political elites in uh, in the area and uh, those claiming jobs under uh, the NREGA. Um, and I, you know, and this is something that is that resonates with conflicts and frictions that I saw in my fieldwork as well. Uh, but I'd love to hear about, you know, how you saw it unfold and how that affects uh, both resource allocation and claim making uh, in the context of uh, Bihar. So, uh, I think one way to think about the whole conflict and the uh, and the problems that Bihar faces, at, especially at the local level, is that. Um, prior to the early 90s, uh, village government in Bihar was kind of more informally run and completely captured by uh, local political elites, right? So uh, local landed elites, it was a very feudal relationship. Bihar historically has had a semi-feudal society and so, uh, or kind of more than semi-feudal society. So essentially what would happen was any resources allocated for say poverty elevation programs or jobs under the Rural Employment Guarantee Act, these programs, uh, these uh, resources were kind of typically captured by those with land, those with uh, uh, those at the top of the social hierarchy. In India, of course, uh, many listeners will know 
there's the caste system. And so village government was typically captured by both the powerful landed elites and the upper castes. Um, and so resource allocation was kind of biased entirely towards the elites. So that was point number one. Now, what happened post the early 90s was that uh, India introduced through the 73rd and 74th amendments, uh, elected representatives at the local level uh, through uh, Panchayati Raj institutions. So these are local government institutions. And so suddenly, um, post uh, 19th Three across the country, 2001 in Bihar, uh, you suddenly had elections at the very local level. And so you had 8,000 village governments in the state of Bihar, right? And each of these had elected representatives. Unfortunately, given that they had anyway captured the informal institutions, winning elections, either by kind of booth, you know, in, by illegal means like booth capturing or by more legal means like whatever legal. Uh, how you define it, but coercive means where you kind of paid off voters or you uh, uh, or you kind of paid off in some sense, uh, threatened your rivals, they continue to capture local government structures. And this has changed over time. I, I don't want to paint it all in black and white. But what this meant was that if you were a marginalized member of society, if you were a low caste person, if you were a woman, if you were an extremely backward caste person, you had no access to the state benefits that were actually allocated to you by policy uh, because you didn't control the actual allocation process itself. The implementation was done by the elite, right? The elected representative. So one solution for this, uh, which, you know, typically we've kind of seen uh, in literature across time is that, you know, people collectivize, they collectively mobilize, they kind of use the strength in numbers. So they may not have the wealth, the assets, the power, but the power comes from the fact that you're many in number. Uh, and then they kind of fight uh, the local landed elites, not necessarily through the use of violence, which also has been used, but more through more democratic means like protests, like you know filing petitions at higher levels and stuff like that. So that's the broader conflict uh, that I kind of try and document throughout the book. Uh, again, the protagonist of the book, Sanjay Sani, when he discovers corruption in his village, in the allocation of jobs, realizes that the only way that people like him, and he comes from an extremely backward caste himself, only way that people like him can get their voices heard is through kind of mass mobilization uh, and through peaceful democratic ways of protest. Um, and so that's basically what the book kind of tries and captures. That's a fascinating topic. And I think uh, one thing that I sort of, for our listeners, maybe we can just go a little bit in depth into this. Uh, when the, I mean, there have been local, rural local self-government in India pre-independence and post-independence yeah. got formalized to a certain extent. Uh, but I suppose the big impetus for it came from the 73rd and the 74th Amendment, specifically the 73rd Amendment, which basically said every state will have your three-tier panchayat uh, system uh, at the village and at the taluk and at the district level. And I suppose that did that did in, to some extent, and this is where I, I come at it from my research, which is into the urban uh, area, it seemed like a slightly better thought out approach to local self-government. I mean, of course, with all its uh, pitfalls, but as again and again, those of us who are living in Indian cities break our heads going, why hasn't the 74th Amendment made any impact on us? And I sort of wanted to uh, understand the, the, the specific implication of how Bihar implemented this, right? Because we see that there are reservations for women, Dalits, and of late now, every, the demand is for OBC reservations. Uh, the question where I'm coming from is, it's there is a somewhat simplistic understanding of caste as upper caste and everyone else, but it a lot of times tends to be a dominant caste, for the lack of a better word, in that particular village area and so on, who are able to control their resources. And 
how did that play out right like was there a, a, a level a, a local level where let's say one group might belong to even within sc communities or even within obc communities uh, how did we use big government categories for this but locally how did this play out how did this like you know we are the majority but this small group has still been able to dominate the resources so this is a, um, a very interesting question. So let me try and answer this in the following way, right? So think of the reservation policy that you started with. So you said um, there has been reservation for women, for Dalits, for EBCs. So first thing that the uh, powerful uh, caste tried to do in Bihar was completely block the process of reservation. So while the rest of the country implemented reservation in Panjati Raj institutions by the 90s, Bihar took all the way to 2006. Uh, that's because a slew of cases were filed in the high court um, challenging reservation itself. We can talk about that in greater detail if you think your uh, listeners would be interested. But the basic premise was that, you know, this reservation itself is untenable the way it was defined in the 73rd Amendment. And Bihar the high court kind of consistently for a while supported this view. So that was one way that the more powerful castes uh, kind of stopped, thwarted the policy of reservation. The second thing to remember is post-reservation, and this is remarkable because when Bihar eventually implemented reservation in 2006, they had nearly 50% reservation for women, uh, 16 to 17% reservation for scheduled castes, about 1% for scheduled tribes. These are both kind of uh, the proportion of SCs and STs, and these are marginalized caste groups for your audience who may not be familiar with the context. This is the proportion of those groups in the overall population. So they were quotas exactly in line with their overall population numbers and up to 20% reservation for members of extremely backward caste. So they had this really nice policy where they suddenly democratized the uh, set of leaders, uh, massively in improving the representativeness of members from backward caste. Now, you could imagine, and, and kind of disadvantaged caste groups, and you could imagine that this would have kind of completely changed uh, the way resources were allocated and stuff. And actually, we have some research uh, with my co-author Chenmay Kumar to show that actually reservation for Dalits, that is scheduled castes, actually helped improve outcomes for scheduled caste members. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it worked exactly as it was written in the law. And for this, you need kind of more local context. So in, for example, uh, let me give you one story. So uh, in the village of Ratnauli in Muzaffarpur, which is the kind of site of a lot of the stories from Last Amongst Equals, the powerful local caste is actually the Sahani caste. The Sahanis are economically backward castes in many ways. They're fisher, they're fishermen community and stuff. But because they have, they're about 33% of the panchayat, they are numerically dominant and they have historically owned some land. This is not to say that there have not been other upper castes who have also controlled uh, various aspects of village life and control continue to do so. But um, part of what has happened with 70 years of India's development, especially in this particular village, was that some of the upper castes began to exit village life altogether. So in Bihar, you know, land holdings become increasingly factionalized with every generation. And so what that means is that there's a pressure on uh, members to kind of leave the village and find kind of, you know, in the traditional development model, the Lewis model, for example, people leave villages and kind of move to urban areas. The upper castes were the first to kind of make that exit. But what that meant was you had these kind of powerful local landlords who were from the middle to lower castes who are controlling village life. And so you are entirely right, right to say that it's not just upper caste, lower caste, there's also numerical dominance, there's also kind of uh, resource dominance. You know, you may own 
uh, you may be only 20% of the village, but you may own 50-60% of the land, uh, which is what the traditional Bhumihar community in Bihar uh, typically does in many villages. So the way dominance functions is kind of super complicated. And in this particular village, we saw this structure where you had the Sahani rich people kind of uh, controlling village life in a way that even poor Sahanis couldn't kind of get their voices heard. And the less said about the other castes, so the first caste further down in the hierarchy, like the Majis, and the, these are all sub-castes, by the way, not within scheduled castes, there's a whole hierarchy of castes, and all of them uh, were having a, an even tougher time. Yeah. I, I mean, I found that fascinating, but, you know, one of the things you uh, do in the book, and then is uh, the subject of a lot of political science literature uh, is actually the role of intermediaries and brokers such as Sanjay Sani himself uh, in ensuring access to welfare programs as in the case of uh, as in the case of Bihar but it's a reality taking different forms all across India and I think uh, very many parts of the global south uh, so I'd love your reflections on on that because what is the nature of intermediation? And I'd love to touch upon through that also some of your new work on technology uh, and how some of this has been sort of uh, refracted, distracted. Uh, I, I don't even know what the right word is uh, through the lens of tech. So uh, let's start with the idea of brokers. So I think you're right entirely that brokers continue to dominate life, both in rural and urban areas. In urban areas, you have the typical touts who are kind of hang around in government offices who you kind of go to for your, your driver's license or, uh, you know, your digital ID or Aadhaar card uh, address change. You know, you, you have all these small things you need to do and you basically have this middle person who's who kind of does this. I think what uh, I have seen brokers in Bihar. So Bihar's villages does have brokers. They're typically people who tie themselves to the local landed elite. So they're either kind of extended family um, and, and their main role is to kind of, you know, you need a signature of the village head uh, for accessing, say, your pensions. Then, the, then this broker is the person who kind of get it done. You need an application submitted at the block development officer's office. Uh, you don't have the resources to travel all the way. This broker will do this, some of this for you, right? So there's brokerage typically occurs. Um, it's a common phenomenon. But I also want to say that Bihar is unique in that uh, and in that it also has this kind of galaxy of local bureaucrats and local elected representatives who are all empowered in different ways. And this is, again, a post-2005 phenomenon uh, where you've had at the... Uh, at the elected representative level, you had uh, people called ward members. They exist in every state. It's not unique to Bihar. But every panchayat, which is like a collection of 2,500 households, has 10 to 12 wards. And each of these wards have an elected representative. So a ward has about 200 to 225 households. And that there's an election at that level. And in some ways, it's kind of fascinating to think about this because Bihar has right now uh, 110,000 wards, 110,000 wards. And each of these wards have an elected representative. Um, and so they're all experiments in local democracy in some sense. So the, if you think about the, the scale and the kind of significance of this, it's enormous, even though there's not much you know, time or this, you know, spent on thinking about these issues more globally. But aside from these ward representatives, you also have brokers. So you also have bureaucrats. You have a, every ward has a ward secretary. Uh, you have a, a, a guy uh, for every de major development scheme, starting from the self-help group scheme uh, to the housing scheme, to the job scheme, to uh, the water scheme, all of these schemes. And there are like uh, a friend of mine was trying to map out the number of local 
uh, either contractual or permanent bureaucrats at the village level and they were hitting more than 40, the number for every village. So 2,500 households is more than 40 local bureaucrats and uh, 15 elected representatives. So it's a bit wild. So that basically means that the space for brokers is a bit diminished because, you know, you also have contractual positions with the local state. And part of why that happens is because there's no other scope for development. Like, you know, the, if there was a bigger private sector, if there was industry, if there were services, you know, then a lot of labor would kind of be channeled in that direction. Unfortunately, uh, there is no such, uh, uh, you know, for various historical reasons, Bihar hasn't managed to kind of do much of any of that. So the state continues to be a very big, uh, you know, employer. Um, even if it's only contractual jobs, it still plays a very big role. So that's part of it. The second thing I'll say in terms of brokerages, so what this basically means is that a lot of these actors act as brokers. So um, you want to uh, get uh, work under the job scheme, you actually have to go to the local bureaucrat who behaves like a typical broker. He'll take your application, he'll charge you a, a fee. That fee is informal. It's not what he gets from the state. He He's going to charge you what's called a commission or a cut. And then he'll file your application, then he'll make you wait. Uh, and then he'll say, give me a bit more money, I'll get your job quicker, you know, the standard stuff. So that happens. Now, let me say a couple of things about technology here. Uh, one way that the local bureaucrats' power can be challenged is to greater transparency. So in the job scheme, what happened was, uh, you know, thanks to the power of the internet, uh, very early, the NREGA, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, had a fantastic public uh, MIS, uh, you know, management information system that made every single job allocated under the scheme, every single day of work done by any laborer anywhere in the country was supposed to be entered and made public online. So you could have access to it. You, you're sitting here in Delhi or Chennai or Bangalore, you can look at what's happening in the farthest corners of the country. And ideally, it should be real time, but usually it takes a few months for the data to be uploaded, but you can still see it. Right. So technology plays a huge role in kind of the transparency kind of makes it harder for brokers to kind of completely control uh, everything that happens because people above in the hierarchy can actually see what's going on to some extent. And it requires people from below, like citizens to kind of plug, you know, kind of look at the data and kind of then flag these issues to men above or women above and then control the local broker. So that's partly what happens. There's also another way in which uh, uh, these brokers themselves can use technology. So I use an example in the book where I talk about these elected representatives, the ward members, who themselves use a complaint system to file complaints online. Um, and then and we help them, we help file complaints for them in that instance, but they do file complaints online about, say, a broken uh, drains project in their wards or like a lack of pipe water. And that then allows them to kind of redress these complaints to the official complaint system. So technology plays a fascinating role uh, in both controlling brokers and sometimes allowing brokers to control higher members of the state. Yeah, and that's, that's very interesting because uh, uh, in that context, I mean, it this number still amazes me. Uh, Bihar is, I think, 90% rural. Uh, and in, in a sense, everybody talks about the great urbanization story in India, but that seems to have like entirely skipped uh, Bihar. Uh, but on the specific point of Manrega, uh, we had a previous guest on our podcast, uh, Diego Majorano, who's done some very interesting work on uh, how Manrega empowered, Manrega is the rural job guarantee program. Uh, how it empowered Dalit women. And he had a very specific definition of empowerment, which was allowed them to take independent life choices. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I know this is more on based on your experiences of fieldwork, but what does that look like, right? I mean, you've talked about how 
this particular program, this rural job guarantee program, uh, was a big bone of contention. It has been used by people to improve their resources and so on. But did you see in the course of your writing and in your book and in your research, what did this empowerment look like in the lives of the people that you encountered? So let me kind of take take you on a scenic route on this. Uh, one of the fascinating things about the Manrega uh, and the way the law was envisaged was that the framers of the original law not just thought about giving people jobs, but also created these kind of forums uh, that allowed for greater transparency, but also encouraged collective action amongst uh, rural wage workers, right? So if you look at the text of the act, I was recently looking at it for some other reason. A very early draft uh, also talks about how uh, if the data is, if, you know, all of the knowledge is made public and there are public hearings, people can actually come together to question the rural state and stuff. So um, what does empowerment look like through the lens of, or through the path of collective action? Uh, uh, I'll give an example. So there was uh, Mandesi Devi, who's a, um, who also is in the Ratnali village, which is the site of a lot of action in my book also. Um, Mandesi Devi was, you know, in her 50s, uh, when she spotted Sanjay Sani kind of uh, show up in the village with a loudspeaker uh, asking people if they had actually worked on the jobs program because he he had by chance discovered corruption online. Uh, sitting in Delhi, he realized that you know there was a whole bunch of names and payments uh, next to those names uh, on the public website of the Manrega. And he, he thought, he just had a sense that maybe this is not entirely true. Let me go back and check if actually all my friends and you know neighbors in the village have been paid so much money. And this was not small sums. This was like 70 days of work, 80 days of work, and tens of thousands of rupees that had been allocated to members of extremely disadvantaged groups. So he decides to go back and he's with a loudspeaker and he has all these names and payments and he started to ask people, you know, have you have you been paid? You know, this is the name, this much is the payment. And Mandesini Devi kind of just caught, uh, was, was also part of that initial group of people who saw this and she saw her name being read out and she thought, I've never worked on this scheme. So where has this money gone? Who has got the money? Um, and she decided to kind of just join uh, with uh, Sanjay Sani and she's been one of the early kind of members of the movement in terms of her empowerment, right? So first, uh, she was actually able to work under the scheme, develop kind of intra-village networks, a stronger network. Like now you have these peer networks where you work with other women like you, other men. All of you go together, you go to a workplace and you kind of get, you know, 10 days, 15 days, 20 days. On average, I would say Mandesh Vidhi would have worked about 30 to 40 days a year for the last 10 years. That basically translates to about 5,000 rupees a year. 5,000 rupees a year may seem like a really small amount to many people living in urban India, especially people who will be listening to this podcast but 5,000 rupees a year over six, seven years is actually a new room in your house, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, is a small cycle for your daughter, um, is uh, an additional couple of years of high school for your child. So, you know, there's a bunch of things that 5,000 to 10,000 uh, uh, rupees every year can kind of get you. Um, and that is extraordinarily empowering just financially. But Mandesri Devi's journey didn't stop there, right? So she then decided to kind of also be part of the collective action, the mobilization, the protest. So suddenly she's not just fighting for herself and her employment. She's also fighting for her community. She is doing demonstrations in the block office. She is going to the district headquarters. She is sitting in a room with the collective, the district magistrate, who's arguably the most powerful bureaucrat in a district. And a district has 
an Indian district will have what um 25 lakh people, right? So you are now sitting 2.5 million people. So you're now sitting in a room uh with the guy who has the most power amongst uh, 2.5 million individuals in that district in terms of bureaucratic power, and you're talking you know, eye to eye with that person. So that's another level of empowerment. She also then gets a chance to, because of course of the unique circumstances of the people's movement in Muzaffarpur, she gets a chance to work with other workers on uh, uh, kind of struggling on Narega from across the country. So she has been to Delhi five times. And you know, this is a woman who had never left her district. For her to go to faraway Delhi, participate in protests. So this is all empowerment. And the one thing I'll say about her is this, in 2020, I was chatting with her and I said, you've done so much. You should be standing for village village government now. You should stand for, you know, ward elections and and uh, village head mukhya elections and stuff. And she said, uh, I'm scared that if I go on, if I stand and I win, uh, I'll become greedy. So uh, I said, you know, this is remarkable because it says that you are empowered enough to think you'll win. But you also kind of think that maybe, you know, you become greedy, you'll move on to the other side. Uh, and I said, if you're already thinking this, maybe you won't become greedy because you already know in advance. So she said, well, that may be the case. But let me say another thing. She says, if all of us are in government, who will fight for us? So, she, you know, and I love that line. And so this was the kind of thinking that this illiterate uh, now she's 60 plus, uh, 60 year old woman, uh, um, is able to kind of grapple with and all of this through this one uh, Madrega program and the collective action around it. Well, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's one of the paradoxes, I guess, of uh, of Indian political life, where, where the main channel of claim making remains the state, but yet um, there is a deep mistrust of what it represents or is in that way. Uh, and this is a sentiment in different forms that I also encountered. So I was, you know, smiling throughout um, through through this conversation. I'd love to bring you back to technology, Sharon. Right. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, this conversation has followed almost two parallel tracks. Um, and uh, I run Apti and we do a lot of work in terms of understanding technology. So um, particularly thinking about the ways in which uh, intermediaries, brokers of various sorts uh, mediate access to technology. So the findings are absolutely the same, whether it's urban or I guess in your context rural, which is that it empowers uh, claim making in a certain way because it uh, it allows it democratizes access etc so it controls and keeps a check on higher levels um, whereas at the same time it uh, it enables um, intermediaries themselves to claim accountability of systems uh, but I mean I think that our research and you know some of the other uh, work in this area that I'm increasingly seeing is that it still continues to disadvantage people. Uh, from certain communities, um, in part because what technology does is visibilize geography, and geography often is very related to uh, various forms of social identification. So I'd love to see if you had, uh, you know, any visibility or any experience in terms of thinking through this. So um, this is a good question. I don't have a clear story of say someone so someone using technology directly to target certain groups. But let me give you. Uh, uh, a way in which technology is definitely in the current moment very damaging to workers, right? Um, you have this new uh, requirement under the Manrega laws that you have to mark attendance using mobile phone technology, right? So you have to now take a photograph. So you are a worker, 
you show up to work at whatever 8 am it's winter so people don't show up at 5:30 anymore you work uh, you know the typical manrega uh, work is say uh, clearing uh, irrigation canal so you kind of clear the path for the river to flow during the rain so you kind of do a lot of digging it's called mitti kaka the work with mud right now you show up at 8 am and the rules mandate that your photograph must be taken by the local bureaucrat and uploaded on to the public mis uh, with by 11 am now the local bureaucrat has to show up so that now gives them more discretionary power not every local bureaucrat wants to do good by wants to do good by you they want to kind of allocate jobs resources towards people that they want to favor the third thing is typically uh, a manrega work has maybe 10 15 workers but in places where workers are very active there's a lot of collective mobilization you have these massive work sites of 200 people now the local bureaucrat has to take photographs of 200 people and mark attendance very quickly this is super hard to do so even the most uh, you know the most devoted local bureaucrat will not show up at 8 am on a winter morning they will show up at 9:30 10 they will get attendance of 70 people and the remaining 130 people do not even get their attendance mark so they don't get any money this is kind of devastating if you if you think of the amount of work these people do they are women mostly uh, in their 40s 50s 60s back breaking work um in the cold in the sun and now to be told that oh you know you, you won't be paid because we have this viewer technology requirement that your attendance has to be marked in some way uh, that's just absurd okay but here's the other thing about technology so there's this massive strikes that these people are doing and uh, again protesting this very move right and where is all the coordination on you know where the strike is going to happen how many people are going to show up happening it's all happening on whatsapp so on the same side you have whatsapp that's playing this amazing coordination device that's kind of getting workers from everywhere giving them like you know specific locations of when they have to show up where and you know this is basically how technology can both massively disempower and also act at the same time as a way in which it mobilizes and creates protests and this we've seen not just in uh, bihar we've seen it since the arab spring or even earlier that you know social media has really helped kind of propel collective action um so it is kind of weird uh, the way uh, technology plays a role i myself i'm kind of i think that beyond a point uh, technology cannot be the answer to a lot of the problems that plague uh, society and you know this over reliance on kind of you know doing biometric attendance and all of these things i think is just uh, is absurd i mean i don't think you need any of this uh, to make schemes work well what you actually need is uh, is is you know just better transparency some of the transparency measures that have already been taken but stricter incentives for auditors uh, more collective action uh, more empowerment of workers in terms of their role in kind of generating their own attendance sheets for example so all of these things can be done um, and i think those are much better substitutes for some of these extreme technology measures that are being undertaken no absolutely i mean i i can't, can't uh, you know it it cannot be said enough how uh, limiting technology is and also a part of the challenge with technology is that it digitizes what can be digitized and a large part of you know access to welfare ranging from questions from access to welfare and we've seen this in the in the domain of health and the in the in the domain of uh, urban governance um that there are very many sort of aspects of life that are not digitizable um and it's also complicated when service delivery contexts for example are not online so i mean you can digitize access to one certificate online but you know thinking about what it means and translates to in real life offline is completely different and then of course you know as you mentioned the challenge that um 
women marginalized groups have lower uh, access to technology in a very instrumental sense um which also brings with it its own paradoxes uh, but you know i you know i'd love to sort of pull this uh, towards uh, a close as well um and hear a, hear from you on what you think might be um I, mean, i don't want to be reductive and call them solutions but uh, what might a way forward look like um from some of these uh, conundrums and obvious injustices i think uh, around political life uh, in india okay so i'm going to make a, a pitch that i've been making a bit uh, over the last few weeks which is that uh, a lot of political life actually uh, in the in the national media and everywhere else seems to focus on people who are members of parliament or members of legislative assembly who are at much higher levels of government and who have their role to play who are uh, who kind of make policy right but a lot of actually where things actually happen is not at that level at all in fact most uh, people do not even know who they are or do not they may know the name but they don't really have a sense of who their elected representative is at the uh, state and the national levels who they have a great much closer much intimate much more intimate relationship with is the locally elected uh, village head or your ward representative in your ward representative's case you know about 10% of the people in your ward will be relatives of the representative themselves so it's that close right so you can actually then uh, kind of question these people make better claims stronger claims much more but there is a problem here the big problem with the way um, this whole institution is set up is that at the local level the leaders are empowered only to implement programs not decide policies themselves right uh, there's complete there's incomplete devolution i'll give you one example um, the village head of ratnali was complaining to me a couple of months ago that he had taken a list of uh, names of people who either wanted new toilets or repair or repairs on their older toilets uh, and submitted the names and exact amounts that they needed to be allocated under the toilet scheme uh, to the block development officer the block development officer looked at the list and very politely told him that look your village has been de- has been declared open defecation free so you don't you can't get more money however i can allocate funds to you to create open air gyms in your village now this man is just telling me that you know we have these mazdoors these workers who've toiled in the fields all day on construction sites and brick kilns they show up and now you want them to lift dumbbells and do exercises in open air gyms how does that even make sense right but this story kind of encapsulates the uh, the complete lack of decision making powers you have at the local level when in fact you could argue that the local leaders are the ones who are best place to make policy making decisions at that level now there is a problem here and the problem is the following right so there's a vast literature in economics that argues that you know if you decentralize too much there's elite capture uh, and all of that and th- that is a valid concern the other valid concern is that the way the 73rd and 74th amendments especially 73rd because that's the one i know better was written was that actually the bridge between the local governance institutions and the higher tier elected representatives is kind of poor right so uh, there's a lot of tension between them it's completely unclear uh, who play, who has to play what role and so this leads to a lot of kind of this the incomplete devolution is actually a feature almost not a bug of the way the 73rd amendment was written right uh, and so this there's a long way to go here but i think 
if I had to make one policy prescription, it would be that devolve more, uh, both to the village level and to the ward level, and give more policy making powers, not just money, uh, but also give them more freedom to do what they want. And while I don't have rigorous empirical evidence to show this, I think all of us who care about democracy, who care about decentralization, who care about uh, more marginalized voices being heard, will kind of intuitively grasp the fact that if there is more power at the local level, there's kind of more equitable allocation of resources and policy making. No, I, I completely agree with you, Sharon. It's something that uh, in, in another uh, role of mine at really sent up a policy, we kind of say this in the context of the urban uh, governance, but it's very interesting that you also say this in the context of uh, rural governance, because I think the model for rural governance in India at the moment still came a little bit from some of the Panchayati Raj reforms made in Karnataka in the 80s. Uh, one sort of final question to sort of uh, push it. I think Saryu has one more after this, uh, but at least for me, one thing that I sort of wanted to, the point that you just picked up on, like give them more policy powers, right? Uh, what would be the two or three key areas that you think, like tomorrow, if, if you were to be put on the spot and said, okay, fine, we'll give policy powers, but only these two, or three, what, 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 what do you think would be, would be the most important that they should be given pronto? So, um, what I would say is, uh, the way I would think about this is, instead of saying, give them more policy uh, powers in terms of implementing certain policies, you give them a larger share of untied grants. So there is grants from the State Finance Commission that shows up, That's and some of it is allocated for specific things, but you should increase the share of money that they get when they can do whatever they want. And that's because there's the needs of the local population are extraordinarily heterogeneous. And it's very hard to aggregate that kind of information at higher levels. In Karnataka, we actually, uh, this is a working paper, so I don't want to kind of make a big deal of it. But uh, we, you know, Karnataka had this amazing uh, development, I mean, not amazing, but they had this very natural, very kind of random natural experiment that happened in July 2020, uh, where uh, nearly 98% of panchayats were taken over by an, by an administrator, partly because uh, COVID's postponed elections, right? But there were 2% of panchayats which were on a different electoral cycle, so they continued to have elected representatives. So you have a six-month period where you had some panchayats being governed by elected representatives and a vast majority by administrators. And this is work with Biju, uh, Vijayendra Rao and Abhishek Karoda and Siddharth George, where we are now showing that where there are elected representatives, the money being allocated, money, more budgetary spending is being done along the lines of what citizens care about. So citizens care about streetlights, then there's more money on streetlights. Citizens care about roads, then there's more money being spent on roads. And we mapped citizen preferences based on a citizen survey with budgetary, actual budgetary allocations. And that's true more in elected places. However, even overall, in general, there is more spending done according to what citizens care about, but the correlation is pretty small. So you need to kind of massively increase that where you take into consideration what citizens care about and give more powers to uh, elected representatives. That's how I think about it. That's fascinating, uh, Sharan. And though Alok threatened it, I do not have another follow-up question. But uh, to, uh, to all of our readers, I would highly recommend... Uh, picking up Sharon's book or all of his uh, papers. They're tremendously interesting and also, I would say, accessible. Um, and so thank you very much, Sharon, for walking us through your work and being so generous with your time. Thank you so much, Sarayu and Alok. I had a great time. Uh, I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Yeah. Right. Thanks, thank sir. you. Thank you. And see you all at the, hopefully the next episode of our podcast and also to thank our producer, Afra. Uh, without whose tireless work, all of this doesn't come through. I hope you all have a good day. Yes. Thank you.